Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. Did you hear about the image of the black hole? Did I ever? Yeah. I guess that's kind of a silly question to ask you because you're into physics. <laughs> it's also a silly question to ask if you heard about an image. I think it's more like, did you see the image? But anyway. Yeah, that's that's a good point. So I guess, uh, like, how, how'd they do that? Just a really big telescope lens or something? It's Zoom complicated. Let's talk about it. All right. You're listening to Linear Digressions. So just for anyone who somehow missed this, a couple weeks ago, was all over the newspapers and stuff, there was a actual picture of a black hole that scientists took. And you can see it. And that's really cool. Because while we've had a lot of indirect evidence of black holes, and they were theorized by Einstein's general theory of relativity, they are, by definition, very hard to see for a number of reasons. And so the fact that we could take a picture of one is very exciting. I mean, it's kind of in the name. You, you can't really see a hole, and you generally can't see things that are black. Um, well, yeah, I mean, that's that's like part of it, right? Is so because the reason they're called black holes is because the gravitational pull is so strong that nothing, not even light, can escape. So, but that's that's a little bit, there's like, the light that we see from a black hole is not a self-light that's inside of the black hole, instead it's light that's generated by the process of material spinning around it that generates light that then we can detect. So that's what we saw. But but the picture that you saw, if anyone, anyone who saw it, it looks like kind of a kind of like a like a donut that's like a little heavier on one side than on the other and the donut hole the black spot in the middle is the actual black hole anyway right yeah. so so it's impossible to actually image a black hole directly but you can image the stuff around the black hole that's interacting with the black hole gravitationally yeah that's right and you can see the you can see the gap where you can't see anything because the black hole is there and so that's like the closest right. that you can get to seeing it right so that's what we saw. Okay, so this wasn't done with like a gigantic pair of binoculars or a gigantic uh, like optical telescope, right? <laughs> well, a gigantic pair of binoculars is actually you're a little bit closer than you think. So a couple things. Number Ooh. one is that the picture was actually taken in radio frequency. So as you know, right. light is there's visible light that we can see, but there's all different ranges of light electromagnetic radiation that can be produced and radio uh, is one of the longer wavelengths and that's nice because it can go through materials in a way that some of the shorter wavelengths can't so think about radios you can listen to a radio inside a building right that's because radio wavelengths can get through walls and stuff in a way that say light can't if you unless you have a window right because the lower the wavelength the more it can get through things, everyday things, and the higher the wavelength, the less it can. And that's why you can hear AM radio when you can't make out FM radio, is because the the frequency is uh, lower. Uh, yeah, well, it gets a little complicated because different, different frequencies interact with different types of material in different ways, but mm. yeah. And the reason that this is relevant is because the black hole that we imaged was near the center of the galaxy, and there's a whole bunch of stuff between us and that, most notably, like, dust and gas. And so if you were to try to look at it in the optical wavelength, 
uh, you wouldn't be able to see it very well because the light gets messed up by all the dust and gas in between, but the radio waves go straight through. So that's the first point, is that uh, what you need is basically a big radio telescope to see this thing. Now, we have radio telescopes actually at many different points all over the world. So we don't have a we don't have a problem there necessarily with looking at the sky in the radio frequency. But the second thing to remember about black holes is that they're very, very small. Well, they're not very, very small. Like this one's, you know, super massive and it's the size of like many, many suns or something. But in terms of how much space it takes up in the sky, as we look at it, it's very, very small. And so that means that we need a very, very good angular resolution to see it. Angular so that means revolution. Resolution. 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 Yeah. So we basically need a telescope that can see very, very small things. That's all I'm trying to say. But the problem is that a single telescope, there's a there's an inverse relationship between the size of a telescope that you have and the resolution that it has. So bigger telescopes, you can see finer uh, detail. Right. So I, by the way, I just looked it up. The DISH is a radio telescope uh, in uh, at Stanford, and it's 150 feet diameter. If it was 300 feet diameter or 600 feet or 1,200 feet, it would be able to resolve things that were smaller and smaller and smaller, but it would become exponentially difficult to build and maintain and probably at, at some point impossible. Yes. Um, cool. Okay. Yeah. So these things are pretty big just to get kind of basic measurements. And this is tr this is really pushing the edge in terms of something very, very small that you want to see very far away. So let's do the thought experiment, though, of how big would the how big would the dish have to be if you wanted to see this black hole with it? It turns out it's kind of roughly the size of the entire diameter of the Earth. So if you Wait, had... What? Yeah. So if you turn the entire Earth into a radio telescope and you pointed it at this black hole, you could see roughly what we saw a couple weeks ago. So that's how big well, it has to be. Well, we didn't do that. Correct. We didn't, we didn't convert <laughs> half of the Earth into a radio telescope. Correct. And so this is where it starts to make use of a trick in radio astronomy people have been using for many decades called uh, interferometry. And so this is the, it's based on the term interference. And so interferometry, the idea here is that if you have multiple telescopes that are all making the same measurement, that are all looking at the same mm -hmm. object, then through some like sophisticated techniques, you can basically reconstruct an image that is the same image that you could get if you had a telescope that was as big as the area that encompasses those telescopes. So imagine you had a bunch of small, let's say, uh, a Stanford dish-sized telescope that's sitting on the foothills up above Stanford, and then you had another one that was the same size up in San Francisco, like 40 miles away. Then if you were clever and, and good at a bunch of electrical engineering things and stuff like this, you could effectively make from the measurements of those two put together, an image that is the same as a 40 miles in diameter radio telescope. Oh, so I think I see where you're going with this. 
we need a telescope that's about the size of the Earth. We obviously can't do that. But using interferometry, we can take radio telescopes that are all over the world and put all of those, uh, have them all observe the same thing, put all of those signals together, and then using some EE and some math, we could reconstruct what it would have looked like if we actually did have a telescope that big. Is that right? We're getting closer. We're not all the way there, okay. but yeah. So a couple things. Number one, we're going to take advantage not just of the fact that we have telescopes all over the Earth, but that each telescope, because the Earth is turning, traces out an arc that goes across the lines of latitude of the Earth. So if you have a telescope, say, on the equator, and you wait 12 hours, it's going to be on one side of the diameter of the Earth in the morning, and on the opposite side in the evening, and in between, you're like tracing tracing through the equator with that telescope. So you have multiple telescopes, but also each one can take multiple measurements. So that helps. And then a second piece, though, that uh, is really important for interferometry is that you don't get this nice, all of the telescopes adding up to something that's super big. You don't get that for free. The price that you pay is that you have to know very, very precisely where those telescopes are relative to each other. Because the thing that you're taking advantage of is the interference effect. That's where the word comes from. The interference effect of the, uh, the light rays that are coming from the source that you're measuring. And that sometimes, depending on the wavelength of the light and how far apart those telescopes are, sometimes the light that you get will be constructively interfering and you'll see a measurement. Sometimes it'll be destructively interfering and you'll see nothing. And so that's what underlies the math that allows you to combine those measurements and add them up together in a way that's coherent. And so that what that means is that you have to know very, very precisely where those telescopes are and have very precise timekeeping measurements across all of them. So that's a thing that's actually quite hard to do. And I just want to note that because it's one of the great challenges of, of putting together the data from multiple sources to, to use this trick. But that having been said, it's a, uh, it's a challenging problem, but it's a solvable problem, especially for radio wavelengths. It's really, really hard to do for shorter mm. wavelengths, like for optical wavelengths. It's, it sounds borderline oh, almost right. impossible but right, radio because... wavelengths are a little bit more forgiving because they're bigger so you right have okay so if you're off by a tiny bit that tiny bit is going to be uh proportionally smaller for a radio wavelength than it would be for uh say visible light yeah yeah so okay so we have measurements from all these different radio telescopes from all across the world they're each tracing out these paths as they're, as the earth is turning together, all of them give us partial information for reconstructing this image. It doesn't get us all of the way there. And so this last, the last piece is, I think there's, there's also a couple, a couple little tricks in here that I'm glossing over. I'll attach a couple of really interesting links on lineardigressions.com of explanations of some of the subtleties in the middle here. Um, but the last piece, and the one that I think is really interesting for machine learning folks, is the innovation of how do you take all of these partial images of a black hole that you're getting from each of these pieces and reassemble them into a single coherent picture. 
And so here's the trick is what they're doing here is a, an exercise in image reconstruction, right? One of the ways, think back, think back to some of the conversations that we've had about, um, say, using computer version neural nets for doing image mm-hmm. recognition and stuff, right? Yeah. So one of the things we talked about is when you're training one of these neural nets, you have, and you look at the, at the in-between layers of the neural nets, you find that what they do when they're learning how to do an image recognition task or image reconstruction is that they're creating different fundamental pieces of pictures like edges and lines and small patterns and blobs. And they're layering those on top of each other with increasing amounts of complexity to finally reconstruct the final image or to create the final image, if you like. That's the idea that underlies this last step of recreating the picture. So what the algorithm designer did, the one who gets the most credit for for this algorithm overall is a she was a grad student at the time she started and I think she's a postdoc now, Dr. Katie Bauman. So what she did was she actually built an image reconstruction algorithm for reconstructing this picture out of pieces of other pictures. So she trains an algorithm. I don't actually know if it was a neural net or not, but same idea. She trains this algorithm on pieces of pictures and picture, you know, whole pictures that she's gotten from other sources and uses that to reconstruct the image. And this hmm. is really interesting because you might say like, that makes me, so like, what do, what do people take pictures of, right? They take pictures of, uh, they take selfies, they take pictures of buildings, they take pictures of, I don't know, cats. And so yeah. if you're if you're a computer scientist or a sci- astronomer, you might say, why do we think that pictures of cats and selfies, and maybe we can also use some data sets that are pictures of galaxies and stars and stuff that looks more like outer space. Like, why should we think that any of these is going to give us a true representation of what what the black hole actually looked like. Like maybe it'll just come out looking like a cat, right? If we used a bunch of cat ingredients. And that's right. kind of that's kind of where the magic of this is. The proof is in the pudding, I think. You're right to be skeptical if you're like, I don't know that I believe that cat pictures will reconstruct a black hole for me. That's that's the right attitude to have. And so what she and her colleagues did was they built a bunch of different reconstruction algorithms with different types of images that they used as the training sets. So they had one of, you know, cats and people, they had a bunch of ones of with astronomy database, astronomy pictures, you know, whatever else, and then would send in different types of images that had been processed so that they were split up into pieces in the same way that mimics the data that you would get from the black hole measurements. And then you would see what kind of image each one of these reconstruction algorithms created out of that. If the thing that you put in and the thing that you get out, they look the same and they look the same regardless of which type of reconstruction algorithm you used, then that gives you confidence that the overall premise is going to give you back something that looks like what it was you started with. So it kind of doesn't, I'm sure they, they had some way of assessing the quality of the different types of reconstruction algorithms based on the different, the different, you know, image bases that they used. But the point was that it, 
they proved that it didn't really matter that much. You could use cat pictures, you could use selfies, you could use astronomy pictures, you'd still always get something that looked pretty similar. And so that gives them a lot of confidence that the image reconstruction algorithm that they write isn't biasing the results that they get. And so that means that the results that they get are, they have high confidence that they're, that they're true in a sense. Wow. And so, and that so that really was the is. last, yeah, I thought that was, that was the piece that like kind of seemed a little bit, a little bit magical to me. Cause it was like taking some of these old ideas like interferometry, um, but then layering on this really interesting computer science piece to make it all come together. That's really, that's wild. That's so cool. Yeah, it's really neat. So now we have a picture of a black hole. You should, of course, go see it if you haven't already seen it. But I imagine most people have seen it by now, right? Yeah, that's just that's just wild. That's so cool. Um, one brief correction. It's not actually the, the one that we observed uh, that you see the picture of online and everything is actually not the one that was in the center of our galaxy, but in the center of M87, which is a galaxy that has a much larger black hole than the one that was in the center of ours. Cool. Good. Yes. Thank you for correcting that. I think one of the coolest things about this to me is that we have all of these different uh, methods like uh, interferometry. I always worry that I'm saying that that word wrong. Uh, spectroscopy, like all of these different methods that we use regularly in astronomy, but we don't really see very much in our everyday life as citizens, at least not directly. It's kind of strange to think that it is possible that they took, someone took my, I, I guess not my selfie, but that we took a bunch of selfies of humans, of people, and made a model from it. And it is possible that they might use that model to reconstruct an image of something that's so far off in the cosmos, very difficult to image and that we've never seen before. Like that's kind of a crazy idea that, that in a way we, it feels almost poetic that in a way we could actually be part of, in a more intimate way, be part of the process of observing our universe around us, not just through science and math. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's really cool too. I'm not, to be clear, I'm not sure that they actually used any selfies for reconstructing this image, <laughs> but the point is, even if they had, it would look the same. And so sure, mm -hmm. yeah, there's uh, there's nothing stopping anyone, I guess, except like CPU cycles from uh, reconstructing any future black hole images with selfies or cat pictures or any other, you know, stupid pictures we want to take with our phones. <laughs> So with that, every time you take a selfie from now on, think about how that could be used for science someday. Man, machine learning's crazy. Okay, so now you know more about the black hole algorithm. For even more, there's a couple of really good links that I found in researching this that go into some more detail than we got into here and have some other really good explanations of some of the stuff we talked about. Those will be on LinearDigressions.com. And uh, yeah. Enjoy. Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. 
And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at lineardigressions.com and katie at lineardigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at lindigressions. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time.